I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Okay, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us David Evans from Clear Mountain Reptiles. Hey, David. G'day. How's it going, everyone? We're lucky. Dave's come over, isn't he? From Brisbane. Come and see us. Talk some reptile stuff, which will be good. And you've just held your first Owen Pelly. Yeah, that was quite an experience. Yeah. Told you to leave it alone, but you still got it out. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, they're, they're, they're strange animals. I don't Very know what to... different to anything I've ever held before. Mm. Yeah, didn't yeah. fit, wasn't a carpet python. Yeah, mm. just bizarre. It's good, yeah, it's good that they lost that Morelia mm. type, uh, uh, Morelia name, but uh, yeah, now they're Somalia. Um, having worked with some scrub pythons, which are now Somalia, and bowlins pythons in the UK. Um, they are very much like bowlins um, to me at the moment. But yeah, you're right, they're a bit strange. Mm. Yeah, the way it moved and in, felt in your hands reminded me of like tree snakes, I thought. It, yeah. Because a carpet python will sort of sit in your hand or wrap around your hand and hold on, whereas this thing was just constantly moving. It never wanted to sit still on you. It mm. was just going the whole time. Yeah, which so. is something that, that Gavin said to me. You know, you'll find when they get bigger, they're quite hard to handle because mm. they want to keep going all the time. You can imagine a five-meter snake yeah. doing what that little thing was doing would be pretty difficult. Yes, yeah. Two people would probably come in handy for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't seem to be nasty at all, so that's good. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah, the colors on it, it had that sort of sort of like rough-scale appearance where you can see that, like you were saying, at night time, the colour shift in it. You yeah. can just tell by looking at it that that's not how it's always going to mm. look. So, yeah. No, mm. it's pretty amazing. So you'll get them up at some point. One day. One day. One day. <laughs> when you breed them. Yeah, that's I'll, right. I'll take you'll, a baby off you. Some. Yeah. yeah. Mentioned like how tree snakes don't grip on. Why don't they? I mean, like carpet pythons, when you hold one, it wraps around your hand and people that aren't familiar with it go, oh, it's trying to strangle me. Mm. You know, and obviously it's so they don't fall out of the tree or predators to rip them out. Um, they just don't grip on. Find that fast. I've never really had much to do with tree snakes. Yeah, they're just they're just always sort of on. They're just always moving, and I find like when I was holding the Owen oh, Pelly, like it its tail would sort of come out of one hand and it would just sort of like flop, and it's not looking for anything to purchase on with because it's good enough with the rest of its body that it doesn't need to hang on as such. I think, and they're quite like tree snakes, quite slender and light. So there's not much sort of weight that they need to balance and support with and they're just looking for the next branch to get onto rather than looking to stay still. Anchor them, themselves. Yeah. That's a very Well, good that's point. my interpretation anyway. Makes I've, sense. I've never looked on it from that perspective. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, because you're right. They don't. Their tail doesn't hold on to something no. um, mm. like a carpet python would. Um, yeah. So I guess we've still got to learn whether Somalia is the correct mm. yeah. term for them as well. But. And I've even seen carpet pythons sort of in that typical S ambush position but on the ground mm. and they've got their sort of lower third like coiled up into almost like a big ball to use that as sort of an anchor point for when they want to strike I think so even if they're not holding onto a branch they're still using that sort of girth and weight to sort of anchor themselves in, in position yeah. so now um, Pelly's are extremely thin too so that checks out with your analogy mm. aren't they like the, the thinnest for a very long snake aren't mm. they yeah, yeah. Mm. what are they mostly hunting the arm Pellys? I think from Gavin's point of view, he seems to have most success on birds, so native pigeons and things. Yeah. I think that's probably what they do. 
do feed on more in the wild, but they would they would take probably some reptiles, I'd imagine, lizards. I'd, I'd definitely say some mammals. They're big enough to take some pretty big mammals. I think some wallabies and things from up that area. Do you think the young ones are feeding predominantly on sort of skinks and frogs and things like that? Well, they, they don't like as young ones that I've got there. Um, this is meant to be about you, Dave, not about me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the young ones that I've got there, one of the things that I've noticed so far is they are useless so far of, of, of like striking, grabbing and mm. coiling. Don't seem very good at that at all at the moment. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of trying to read into that. And when you, when you said that earlier, I thought like if you've ever seen tree snakes catch frogs, they don't coil. They just like bite them and just start eating. And if, yeah, maybe if the young ones are feeding on frogs and skinks and maybe. They, they don't need that constricting sort of behaviour. Very similar situation. Or, yeah, chicks as well, mm. things like that, where they don't need to grab them. Yeah. So with your collection, what's, uh, what's really keeping you going at the moment? What are you loving? Um, at the moment, for the last probably sort of 12 months, it's been getting into some of the sort of smaller, more interesting monitor species. Well, I've had the emeralds for a... A bit longer than that but um but yeah they probably sort of really kicked my interest off into monitors um so yeah since then i've got a few other little species that i've added to the collection and really enjoying them they're far more interactive than than snakes a lot more work so some points in time i'm like why have i got all these things <laughs> but um but yeah definitely more rewarding and if i find myself just sitting in my reptile shed i'm looking at monitors cruising around catching crickets and mm. things like that so yeah, so, yeah. very cool yeah so, the, the dwarf monitors are they can be quite they have, have quite good characters so yeah yeah i recently got some of the northern pilbara rock monitors and it didn't take long at all for them to be feeding from tongs and you sort of walk past their enclosure and they cock their head to the side and really sort of follow you as you're walking around and pay attention to you and yeah you can tell they're a very smart inquisitive little animal and your snakes don't do that <laughs> <laughs> strange only if they can smell rats in the yeah, room sure. so. and they're up so they're northern pilbara rock monitors so i've got the northern and the southern the northern probably my favorite thing in my collection at the moment so to be a tie between that and the mangrove monitor but the mangrove monitor doesn't like me so it's <laughs> a bit of a love they're hate. a stunning monitor yeah. though, the mangroves yeah absolutely beautiful and the last couple of times i've handled it in he hasn't bitten me, so we're making progress. But, um, but yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful animal as well. Now you've got emerald tree monitors. Not many people have those, I'd be correct in saying. No, no, there's oh, maybe half a dozen people in Queensland with them. Um, and they were actually my first monitor that I ever got, so I really sort of jumped in at the deep end. <laughs> but the opportunity was there, and I jumped at it. So, yeah, they're, they're a bit skittish. I found um, the young ones that me and a friend of mine, Joe Ball, went into that project together and he managed to breed his. So I've got the two babies of his adults, which I'm growing up. And they're, they're a bit better than the first ones we got. The first ones were really quite flighty. And if you put the time in with them, I could get them eating from tongs and from my fingers. But as soon as he didn't do that for a week, they were just back to being lunatics that would try and jump out the cage door every time you opened it. Wow, that quickly. They yeah yeah they went they went backwards very fast so but yeah the the little ones just obviously probably me being a bit more confident with them as well and a bit experienced in sort of 
when's a good time to interact with them and whatnot. They're growing up and I imagine they'll be very nice sort of adults to work with. They're from Papua New Guinea, but we've got them in North Queensland, don't we? Uh, according to the field guides, they're on Moa Island, I think it is, off the sort of coast of North Queensland. So, so not on the mainland at all. There is record of it, is that right? Yeah, there's okay. been... Yeah, it sort of gets debated that, whether they're on the mainland or not. So the canopy goanna, is that the other one? Yeah. I think there might have been some like quite nice green examples of canopy goannas that people have seen and maybe thought they were emeralds, but that's just me speculating. But um, apparently they're there if you look hard enough. But Okay. Yeah. Pretty lucky. How about their diet? Is it just live foods? Um, yeah, so a lot of insects. Yeah, sort of boiled egg, turkey mince mixed with egg cockroaches crickets chicken hearts chopped up like day old quail or week old quail just chop it up with a big good pair of scissors and yeah they they really seem to like anything sort of eggy so yeah, i'll often use like chopped up chicken neck calcium powder dipped in egg and give that to them and it's probably a good mix of sort of protein bit of bone lots of goodness in egg yolk do you find them really like arboreal your your setups are pretty amazing that you've got them in that they do spend a lot of time sort of down on the ground hunting. They don't seem to do much of their hunting sort of up, I find. But if if you go into the room and they're out sitting somewhere, they'll be sitting up high. But then they do come down to the ground a lot to do a lot of their hunting. I've seen some videos from zoos where they've used a lot of sort of, I don't know what they actually are. It looks like an old like coconut shell with holes drilled in it. And they put their food items in there and they do definitely sort of use their claws to get in there and dig stuff out and stick their head into holes and i've noticed that with the pilbara rock monitors they're always they got very flat long heads and they're always sticking their heads into little nooks and crannies and i've got some bricks with all the holes in them and they're always poking their head in there looking for food so it's definitely a foraging behavior that i have seen because i mean that must be one of the reasons that long necks evolved for jack and animals mm. out of their hardy holes no for sure it would be yeah that, that's uh, an interesting fact i don't know how many like would have to guess i imagine they'd be sort of rummaging through leaf litter and under old like dropped bark or bark that's peeling off trees for bugs and things like that so. plastic bottles mm. yeah stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> no doubt <laughs> but they are they are a stunning bright green lizard it's it's hard to beat i think a lot of my friends that aren't into reptiles in my family if they ever come over, that's the thing that they go and look at and they're impressed by. It's like a green tree python that actually does something. I was just so. going to say that. I didn't want to offend Steve. No. But I'm glad well, you did. Too, too late. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're very good. But uh, before that, you were heavily into your uh, anteresia and the morphs that come with. You've had a lot of success with those. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, anteresia and quite a few carpet pythons is still in the collection and got a lot of pairings happening this year so yeah it was really probably the marbles that really sort of sucked me into the anteresia i can remember seeing them on simon stone's website or in a magazine ages ago and actually spoke to simon when he was selling the whole project off but uh was a little bit out of my price range but yeah there i i reckon marbles are the best animal the best yeah. snake in the hobby, I think. I think, I think yeah. they are. I think they're the best morph mm. ever mm. produced. Yep. Mm. Yep. There's so much variation in them, and you can sort of line breed it to a certain extent, but what actually pops out in a clutch is is unknown, and how they look as a hatchling to three months old, six months old to an adult, you know, 
you just never know exactly what you're going to get. So mm. Mm. you've managed to produce some amazing white ones, which is something that mm. I need. I think at some point. Yeah. Ever cool. ever since my first clutch, I can remember there was a couple of animals in there that were just a little bit lighter than everything else, and I kept them, paired them back to each other, kept the whitest babies, and so I think I'm up to about f3 or f4 with that white stuff now and the results getting really quite consistent with it as well so mm. you can definitely line breed that trait to a certain extent so. yeah interesting mm. yeah because i've got the dark ones i want to line breed those a bit yeah they're pretty cool the, the blacks and they i think a lot of people when they first started seeing those dark ones they're like oh they're just going to end up a brown snake mm. but they they genuinely end up like jet black they're almost like hypermelanistic blue tongue yeah. how black they get yeah so. um, unbelievably black I do mm. like the you know the, the original marbles with the speckling mm. down the back the, the beautiful colours the, the massive white belly that mm. comes up the sides I do love those but the, the dark ones are just a bit confusing to me I love them I want to work that out yeah. it, I've always said there's there's a few genes going on there for me a colour a pattern and probably pied or leucism mm. of some sort all in one sort of thing you know with the royal python days mm. it probably take 10 years to get to something like that yeah. it almost seems like that and sometimes when we get the dark ones or you get the white ones and stuff like that you sort of think is that missing part What's of that going on yeah. yeah and some of the white ones i've produced have got red pupils whereas the normal ones just have a black pupil so yeah, i don't right. know what's because the t plus marbles have got a red pupil as well um which is one of the things that helps distinguish them um, but yeah, those white ones that have got a white pupil, it's there's something else going on there. Mm. But, mm. Mm. Yeah, there's always going to be strange things pop out of it because mm. there's definitely a few things happening there. Yeah. It's a great morph. You've got the Albino Max as well? Yes. Yeah, I've got some nice little babies out last year, which I got incredibly lucky because a lot of my hets and posset animals lay a lot of slugs. So in one clutch... I had three eggs and I got two albinos, so that was that was good odds. And they were both healthy, kink-free animals. Um, and yeah, some of the variation in them is they go from sort of pure whites, sort of bright yellows and oranges, and yeah, there's a lot still to be done with them. I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I've been sp- lucky. The spotted pythons. Yeah, mm. yeah, I've been lucky with that because most people get a one in four. I think is the average. Yeah, of good ones. Yeah, I seem to have had more poshets or hets born with deformities and actual albinos born with deformities so yeah right. yeah and, and that's blessed. been documented isn't it that even the hets mm. have a deformity like i've got some i've got my hets downstairs i've never produced an albino from i know they're hets because they're not great yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you sort of and, and even when i when i get my pos hets out of them i reckon i can go down and say that one's definitely het that one's not het. That one's definitely mm. het. Just by their behaviour, mm. I think I'm going out there on a win there. But I do actually think that I, I'm going to prove some of those out this year. So hopefully that might correspond yeah. with my thinking. But yeah, even the hets have problems. So yeah, and I I will get from my adult females. I'll get like three, four good eggs and a eight to ten slugs in every clutch. That's all I've ever had. Yeah. They just don't seem to be. And these are going back quite a while now, those animals. So they're not from the very original group, but they're not very outcrossed animals. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think outcrossing it is only going to do wonders, as has been shown with what Peter Birch has done with them. Yeah, and, um, yeah, he's put a lot of work into mm. it. 
Um, but I think even he still says, you know, one in four is what he mm. what he hopes for. So mm. yeah. interesting. Yeah. I recently was able to get some of the um, uh, striped blonde Max from John Comino because he's cutting down on a lot of his animals, and they're a very big, strong, robust. I like the big females in that project would be, you know, a kilo mm. plus sort of animals. So I'm hoping to get the albino into those just to try and sort of get a, you know, some good hybrid vigor into them. And, you know, big animals, bigger eggs, bigger clutches, it can only mm. be a good thing. Yeah. A lot of people have even tried putting them out to children's and, mm. and Stimpsons and that just to try and get those robust yeah. animals. Doesn't help, but <laughs> I'm, I'm sure one, doesn't help the hobby. I mean, not no, the animal. <laughs> uh, one of the albinos I hatched last year. The the het male I've got, you can see he's got a little bit of stimmy in him, and one of the albinos just screams stimmy influence. Yeah, same so, with some of mine. There's mm. a couple that you sort of go, yeah, that's that can't be a pure mac. No, so I think the early days they they did that mm. to try and strengthen it because they knew it was crap. Yep. So. Yeah. <laughs> Where you are, like that gets bloody cold. You're inland from Brisbane, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, up near Toowoomba. So, mm. Yeah, we had gets... minus 6.5 the other morning, and I went out. I've got some snakes outside, and I went and hit them with my little infrared thermometer gun, and they were, I think the coldest body temperature I saw on one of them was 0.4, and then that was sort of on the outside of its coils, and on the centre of its head might have been like 2 degrees or something like that. I always figure the sort of the head is probably going to be the warmest part of them mm. and yeah they they're fine so it always baffles me about i had a guy message me recently about cooling his snakes for breeding and he said oh, i've heard if they get below 15 they'll get respiratory infection and i said oh well what do you think would happen if it got to 14 it's like oh that'd probably be okay but what about 13 it's like oh yeah i guess that might be all right what about 12 oh that's probably a bit too cold it's like, where is this, yeah. like, you know, you've just drawn a line in the sand somewhere that all of a sudden it's too cold. But in reality, as long as I think cold and wet's one thing, but yeah, cold. Exactly right. It's the wet that, that does the mm. damage. I, I always treat my collection, as you know, the colder I can get it, the better. Yeah. Like in my collection, this year I've fouled miserably because <laughs> I've sort of made my room a nice little heat spot mm. <laughs> by renovating it at the moment so i've got to sort that out for next year but i never worry about how cold they're going to get during winter never the colder the better but i used to show off because i've got a temperature gun in the uk pretty cold there and i've got a temperature gun pointing it at things like bowling's pythons mm. at six degrees and i used to go ah look at that that's that's low and everyone what yeah you've got zero degrees yeah <laughs> you've got freezing You've got snakes out in mm. that. That's and yeah, no ill effect. They're fine. No, and it's like it's just a coastal carpet, which you get sort of where we are. Mm. Um, a bread lie, which I figure it's got to be one of the like hardest snakes to kill on the planet, probably. Oh a yeah, bread lie. And, and again, that gets freezing, freezing cold where they are, mm. and a diamond, which yeah, diamonds can handle cold well. And um, but yeah, you get them up on some of those mornings when they're freezing cold and it takes them about a minute to sort of flick their tongue in and out and they can hardly move but they come out and sit in the sun for a bit and mm. they're good to go and we've got to say it's not that they need to go that low nothing needs to go that no. low that's that's not what you're aiming for <laughs> but mm. um but yeah don't be too scared about them i always find like it's not it's always stress related if you did that 
and they were in, say, a humongous cage where they had no cover and stuff like that, then you'd probably get res- mm. res- respiratory infection because they're stressed out. Um, so if you add some stresses into it, I think you get a problem. But Yeah, and I, I wouldn't move a snake from indoors to outdoors in the middle of winter. Mm. I've always yeah, yeah, moved them it. outdoors in like sort of spring. Them. So they've got a bit of time to yeah. adjust and with a, with a full belly. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I've got I've got some Cunninghams in the pit outside, which we get. I've found Cunninghams in wood piles on my place and I've thought, oh one of mine must have got out, go to my pit and they're all there. So I just come let it go in the wood pile again. But yeah, they just bunker down over winter and you don't see them for six months of the year. Well you don't see them anyway because they run away all the time. Mm. And some alpine blotchies and tassie blotchies and they have a nice warm well not warm but a nice dry area with a bunch of sugarcane mulch in their enclosure that pit that's sort of fully sealed off and sometimes they'll just literally dig a tunnel and bury themselves six inches in the dirt and that's just where they stay for winter oh just literally in the dirt in the dirt alpines you'd think would be pretty hardy wouldn't you yeah yeah Yeah. i figure Mm. they'll they'll cop whatever i can throw at them Mm. so they could be nice and dry in sugarcane mulch but cold damp dirt is where it's at apparently <laughs> <laughs> so where where you live do you get many wild snakes no the the only ones i've seen on our property have been brown snakes and a red belly hmm. there's a dirt road behind us which is the long way into town but i'll often take that because you've got more chance of seeing reptiles and i've seen tree snakes spotted blacks quite a few lace monitors up there I've seen yellow face whip snakes it's probably a bit a little bit too open where we are for carpet pythons but I, they are around in that area where it's a bit more sort of wooded so, mm. so you get laces out where you are yep do you get the bells and normal or i've only ever seen normals, normals. Mm. yeah yeah the dirt road behind me i've sort of nicknamed lacy lane because <laughs> there was a period there where i'd go running or on my mountain bike and like every second time you'd see a big lacy but haven't seen one for a while now and i don't know why that is but it has been very very dry um recently so i imagine you know a lot of sort of populations of animals are struggling a little bit out there so but it's mostly brown snakes which isn't much fun so you do a lot of exercise dave you madman i, I try <laughs> triathlons uh yeah i'm signed up to do noosa this year but i can't decide whether i'm gonna back out and do it as a team and just do the bike ride or or the full thing I always um, hurt myself when I'm running, so that's a bit of a problem. But. That's because it's a stupid thing to do, Dave. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Short spot, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Don't talk like that to someone who likes exercise, Steve. <laughs> just just got back from a big three-day bike ride up the sunny coast. That was the third day was just the hardest, most horrible day ever. You're but still recovering. From <laughs> I'm still knackered. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What's so, what's so hard about it on that third day? Uh, so you'd already done two fairly solid days beforehand and it was 137 k's and just over two and a half thousand metres of climbing and it was just brutal, sort of up into Montville and Peachester up in the sort of hinterland up there. And beautiful scenery. If I wasn't totally exhausted and knackered, it would have been very enjoyable to have a look around, but... Yeah, I didn't even want to stop at a rest stop to take a photo because I thought if I stop, I'll never get moving again. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, bike products can be hard on that third day when you're you're just hammering those same muscles again and again. But it's a great way to see things because you don't realise until you you get out on the road, like you're normally surrounded by the body of a car 
Mm. On, on a bike, it, you can you can see things. We're talking motorbikes here, aren't we? You talk motorbikes. No, no, no. No, it was good. Yeah, and near where I live, there's some nice sort of dirt roads that you can go on the mountain bike and enjoy, and always keep your eyes peeled for for critters on the road. So you do tend to tend to see more on a bike than when you walk, I think, because you can. It's almost like you're upon them quicker. Mm. When you yeah. walk and they can sense you a bit earlier and they can yeah, so leave. Yeah, so gone by the time you get there. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any advice for people that might be looking at getting into the hobby? I think for people coming into the hobby, you just need to jump in at the deep end in a way and give it a go. Like, don't don't be put off by people saying that you need a certain amount of experience to breed your animals or to keep this or keep that. You know, obviously within reason, but the best way to learn is by doing something yourself so if you're interested and passionate about it do it because there is a lot of negativity around i think and if you jump on facebook which life seems to revolve around facebook now and ask for advice you can often get shut down very quickly Mm -hmm. um so if you can try and find someone that's been doing it a while and get their phone number or meet them face to face and you'll get much better advice sort of in a one-on-one situation than trying to get it from Facebook. I know I benefited a lot in the beginning because the first few snakes I bought were from people who lived near me. So I was able to go to their house, see how they kept animals, ask them for advice, ring them up any time of the day or night, really, if I had problems. And that's a much better way of dealing with things and finding out information from first-hand experience than just reaching out to facebook yeah Yeah, people tend to vent on facebook and with something that people are passionate about keeping an animal for instance you know people will say things that they wouldn't say in person they can Mm. be quite harsh and yeah misconstrued as well as another factor i think a couple Mm. of years ago it was terrible wasn't it you couldn't you just couldn't ask anything on there i think it's got a little bit better recently um i think people are moderating things a lot better now but you're right yeah you just you cringe as soon as someone puts up a fresh post to ask a question. If it's a basic question, you just sit and cringe mm. and just think, oh, no, what's this poor person going to get? Mm. Um, yeah, mm. I think that's getting a bit yeah. better. And that, and that immediate response of people just say, read a book, mm. go and buy this book. Like, that's not actually an answer. So I think you can... I, I'm trying to shift my sort of focus on or my approach to Facebook instead of sitting there looking at it and going, oh, what's this idiot doing today? It's look for those people that are asking for advice and I'm by no means an expert, but actually try and be constructive and helpful on Facebook, which is makes it much more enjoyable for me to interact with the hobby that way as well. And you can give someone an answer and say at the end of it, and by the way, this is a great book to read, mm. but yeah, actually try and do something positive rather than just call someone a noob and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. and abuse yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's a very good point. I love your point about like get your your first sort of animals local to you as well. Mm. I I won't sell someone their first animal interstate. Yeah. Well, in South Australia, because I can give them full backup and help them, and and if push comes to shove, go there and mm. see what they're doing. But interstate, I just won't. If they're real new to the hobby, I'll always recommend go to your local shop. I think that's one of the best things you can do. Some of them are little bit crap yeah but best thing you can do is go to the shop as well because you get all the equipment and although shops are trying to sell you as much as possible like that is what you need at the start that is because that's how you learn about it you've bought mm. all these bits you need to learn about all these bits in the future you might get another one and decide not to have some of those yeah. parts um but yeah i think shops serve a purpose 
Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Getting get local, mm. not, not and a lot of people state. are like I'm hesitant. I don't let too many people come to my house to view my animals and whatnot. But even if you're meeting that local person in a Macca's car park, you still get that. 20 minutes face-to-face time mm. when you pick the animal up to yep. start building that relationship mm. at least and they get a rapport with them people want an animal from me even if they've been in the industry for a long time i want to know the enclosure they're putting it in mm. i want to see a photo of it you know and it sounds really arrogant but you know you, i think people. that's your job to do it like our job mm. to do that to make mm. sure that they are set up especially if they're buying a young animal I, th- I feel like if i saw people's enclosures i'd be telling them to scale it back because they'll often get this small hatchy children's python and go and put it in a four-foot enclosure and then wonder why it doesn't eat. So yep. Yeah. I've, I've often heard that. I'm by no means a reptile expert at all, obviously. Everyone knows that. But why is that? Like, you'd think it lives on the earth, you know. Why is it terrified by a four-foot enclosure? I think because naturally they don't live in that biggest, but they will cram themselves in a little area. They might come out and hunt every now and then, but to be, like, when they want to chill out somewhere they, they mm. can't do it if you haven't got a, a small sort of enclosure i think it just freaks them out so if you've got a four foot enclosure but with appropriate hides is there an issue there or i think you'd need an awful lot of hides yeah okay for a small snake and then and then i think the problem might be is that it'll go and hide at the right hand side of the enclosure and never want to move to the left where the heat is for that sort of first and i think with okay. a lot of sort of breeders like myself we have a lot of hatchlings they're all in relatively small tubs that are kept in a rack and that's sort of the environment they're kind of used to where it's so simple that the snake can't get it wrong yep like the heat's 12 inches away from the cold end so it can't sort of get lost yeah that makes sense. so you've got to sort of graduate it into something a bit a bit bigger that as it gets bigger and bolder it'll adventure more and it seems so wrong, I'm sure, for these people that get this beautiful snake and like, what should I keep it in? A seven litre plastic container. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. funny. Isn't it? yeah. It's like um, you often hear when people say, oh, look, I've got this bearded dragon. Do you want it? My son's not playing with it anymore and I feel sorry for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the best scenario for When, that. when people <laughs> say that to me with a snake, oh, look, you know, my, my kid just doesn't do anything with the snake anymore. Yeah, cool. Yeah, right. Awesome. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Keep it. Yeah, it should be. Listen, my kid can't stop playing with it. Can you take it? Yeah, mm. can you take it away? Yeah, absolutely. We'll take it. But yeah, I think as well, if you put them in a big enclosure and they've got all these hides and you set up all these spectacular things, you know, people do want to go in and handle their snake as well. And you'll be disturbing everything every day, mm. looking, searching for this animal, almost hunting the animal down because it knows you're in there looking around for it. So, yeah, I think it's just adding to stress. Everything you need to do is to try and eliminate the stress, mm. especially with young stuff. Yeah, and that's, I think, sort of how you can treat a young animal and a two-year-old animal are totally different animals, mm. essentially, by that point. Yeah, unless you don't start off right, then the two-year-old animal will be a pain in the ass mm. for the whole of your life, really. So what's in the future for you? Have you got any plans for what you want to do with the reptiles? Um, so if, if anything... I think I'm probably going to, or I'm definitely going to sort of cut down on the numbers that I have. Um, How often do I hear that from people like that keep reptiles? Sorry. Hoarders. And I think it's, I, I sort of say to people every now and then, it's like, oh, you can see why people who've been doing this for ages just 
do it by themselves in their backyard or their shed. Like they don't sort of get involved in the sort of hobby side of it because I think it's very easy when you sort of start off, like I was only meant, my wife allowed me to get one snake and then one became two, which became four, which became babies, which became more. And like you can just sort of get sucked into the, into the hobby and all the colors and patterns and, and, you know, the mutation side of the hobby is just enormous. And once you start mixing different genes together and you've got two, three, four, five traits going in one animal, it's never ending. Like, where do you draw the line? And I think now I'm sort of getting to the point where I'm actually really starting to think about what do I enjoy, not what do I want to produce, which are two very different things. Because at the end of the day, a pretty snake in an enclosure, whether it's got four genes in it or one, is just a pretty snake in an enclosure. So you can kind of get caught up in trying to do too much when the end result isn't really any different to what's already available. So I think trying to, and like the little monitor species and things like that, just new different challenges that I haven't given myself yet. And, you know, trying to set them up in nice enclosures that they can enjoy and I can enjoy and just animals that I want to work with is what I want to focus on rather than just trying to necessarily breed things for the sake of putting those two genes together if I don't actually think it's going to be a good outcome why do it what do you enjoy out of keeping like what is it that you find appealing about like a is it you you talked about some of the small monitors that your favorite to watch at the moment so the activity watching them hunt the behaviors yeah it's just learning I think it's learning something new is what I find is the appealing side of it. And I guess sort of not wanting to detract from what anyone else does in the hobby, but breeding carpet pythons is just breeding carpet pythons. And then it just depends what colors and patterns you put in there. But like the steps are essentially the same. And then it's just whether you hit the odds and get that one in 16 animal or not. But the process is the same and I've sort of, I feel like I've done that and I've ticked those boxes. Um, there's still some in the Antaresia side of things that combinations that I want to work on. Um, so I'm still going to be pursuing the morph side of the hobby. Um, but yeah, just trying to broaden my knowledge on different, different skinks and monitors. And there's a lot of weird and wonderful animals out there that you can keep that I think a lot of the hobby aren't even sort of aware of. I'm guilty of that myself. Yeah, you know, even just keeping some Burton's legless lizards and giving that a go, you know, just because they're different. It's a challenge. and Yeah. I notice that myself when you keep something new, it forces you to go out and read a book about it and learn Mm. what you can about and talk to other people that keep them. So, yeah, you're investigating new species. Mm. And now we're on more space. We're on a few acres where we are now. I've got room to keep animals outdoors which is something i want to do more of as well the different species that will thrive where i am even if they're not necessarily endemic to that area are things that i'd like to like to keep outside because they're a lot less work when they're outside as well and you see a lot more of their sort of natural behaviors i guess and you know they shut down over winter for six months and you've essentially got an empty pit but they're doing their thing they're doing what they should be doing you're not manipulating anything if they breed it's because the conditions are right naturally it's not because we're manipulating anything so you just see a lot more of a sort of natural side of the animal i think than when they're kept in a melamine box so you get it you get a power failure and they don't care 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's that's exactly sort of where I'm going with it as mm. well. Yeah, we yeah, talk a lot about that. Spoken yeah. about this. Yeah. yeah, getting back to like yeah. what sort of drew me into it in the first place was just genuinely being interested about the animals mm. and the enjoyment out of it. So, and I want to do a bit more sort of field herping as well. I enjoy. I don't actively do it very much, but whenever I have a chance to see an animal in the wild, it's always pretty exciting. So. Yeah, I've been on a few organised biological surveys, you know, targeting small mammals and reptiles and things, and it's extraordinary what's out there mm. when you when you lay down some pitfall traps and you've got your your netting and um, things run along and fall in the bucket and you know, areas where you you wouldn't you'd be lucky to find anything. You'd think there's nothing living out here. Like there's there's a plant called sclerulina and it's like not even shin high and it's really really prickly. And um, you, as far as the eye can see, and you'd think there's nothing living here. And then uh, in the evenings, you're finding small snakes and dragons. Mm. And uh, in the mornings, you're finding geckos and legless lizards. And you're finding you know, small carnivorous marsupials yeah. in an area that you would think has no value whatsoever. Yeah, there's a lot more out there than... Like, like you don't see most of the animals that would be around you at any given point. So when you actually spend the time to try and hunt them out, you start to realise what's actually out there and yeah i've i've gotten rid of a few species over the years that in hindsight i regret at the time i needed to because i needed to sort of free up funds or didn't have the time or the space and green tree pythons i'd like to get them again i've recently got an olive python again and it's those species that i've gotten rid of and now i'm getting them again because i want them again you like them Yeah. yeah yeah um and i'd like to sort of one of the challenges i'd like to set myself is breed green tree pythons and i know that's not sort of a massive challenge anymore for people it's fairly well known how to breed them but it's just something i want to do for myself and try and do a lot more sort of maternal incubation and just things like that just play around with the animals a bit more that's interesting you come back on that again like you're doing it for yourself and i like the sound of that because a lot of people they i want that because no one else has got it mm. i mean that can be a driver and there's nothing wrong with that but really or i want this because it's oh, it's worth a lot of money but i can afford it and i want it for that reason right and that's those things fluctuate mm. um you know i guess i guess it's having something that you really enjoy knowing what you like and yeah. if, if people i've seen people that keep murray darling carpet pythons and they'll put a photo up on a reptile page and someone else will come along and go well to people in the hobby that's a really boring animal yeah I go, really my I mean, favorite carpet python there you go no. yeah. i love them i mean they're endangered here in south australia they're awesome they're elusive they're cryptic they're beautiful mm. uh, and that's just my opinion and other people will have different opinions and there's nothing wrong with that you know so get the animal that you like to work with mm. yeah because it's, it's good to sorry it's good to have that time like we've had that time where you just for want of a better way of putting it like you're wanting to chase the dollar Mm. Um, which is sort of what we've done in it over the last few years. Yeah, it's good to do that because then you realise, no, it's not. So that's why I'm right. broke. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> never worked. No. <laughs> and if it's it's sort of the same amount of time and effort goes into looking. Oh, this might sound a bit contradictory, but it's the same amount of time and effort that goes into looking after a fifty dollars snake as a five thousand dollars snake. But if you're not getting any enjoyment out of it, then it's a burden, no matter what it's worth, either. Like, you've got to feed it, clean its tub, change its water bowl, get bitten by it, peed on by it. Like, and if, you, if you're not enjoying it, mm. money is sort of, like, comes and goes. Yeah, like yeah. It, yeah. It lost too short. Mm. 
It's fun, yeah. yeah. And it is, in reality, a lot of it is a fairly sort of mundane, repetitive job. So you may as well clean poop of an animal that you enjoy than one that you don't. <laughs> yeah, sure, because that's pretty much all we do. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, yeah. We need volunteers. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll need volleys. David, thanks, mate, for coming on. It was really cool. I think you're um, you're coming over my place tomorrow too. I think Steve's going to be apparently. Around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm yeah. Very looking forward to meeting your baby wombat. Yeah, that's why people come over to see me. Yeah. That's why Faith came on last week. She just came over to see the wombat, and the yeah. fact that we interviewed her was just. And I love the way that you still put out there. People come over to see me. Yeah, that's right. No, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) I do. Thank you, Stephen. I do. Yeah. Um, David, thanks, mate. Enjoy Mm. your time over in SA. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow. And thanks very much for coming on the show. And guys, thank you for listening.